Hello lovely listeners, Happy New Year. I hope 2023 has been off to a good start for you. And if it hasn't, well, it can only go up from here. We are so excited to be back and this month I'm joined much earlier on in the podcast than usual by our staff writer, Millie Browning. Hi Millie, how are you? Hi Mon, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Um... I'm excited for our podcast this month and it's a little bit different to normal. So would you be able to tell us and our lovely listeners why that is? Yeah, so we thought instead of focusing on one topic like we do every month, we'd have a chat about some of the recent news stories. Um, I don't know about you, but at the moment it feels like there's so much happening across the world and we thought it'd be important just to draw your attention back to what's going on specifically within the healthcare and pharmacy sector. So that's what we're going to do. Awesome. Um, Thank you. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump right in with the first news story and we're going to be turning our attention to diabetes. So if you are one of our very loyal listeners, I'm sure you would have heard um, our diabetes podcast last year. Uh, As we all know, pharmacy teams play a vital role in helping uh, many people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So this story um, that I'm going to chat about now came out on the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, also known as NICE, website on the 10th of January. And it was a story that they estimate around 105,000 people could benefit from a draft recommendation of a new artificial pancreas technology. So new artificial pancreas technology, what is that? Well, it's called a hybrid closed loop system and it's described as a step towards an artificial pancreas. So basically it's a continuous glucose monitor sensor and it's attached to the body and transmits data to an insulin pump that's also worn. Um, It's meant to help people with type one diabetes who don't have Uh, and mean they don't have to monitor their blood glucose levels and based on the data it receives from the body it works out how much insulin the body needs to keep levels healthy. Um, I always find these advances fascinating. I'd be quite intrigued to hear someone's experience of how comfortable it is actually wearing the monitor and pump and how practical it is. If you have experienced it please let us know. We do know, as mentioned before in our prior diabetes podcast, just how much things like glucose monitors have changed people's lives for the better. So hopefully this too can do the same. That's really exciting. It's so interesting to hear about all the new advances in um, technology. It's really exciting that as we learn more about the digital world, we can help ourselves too. Um, My story for this month, well, my first story for this month is a little bit different than that. It's based off our front cover story from this month's TM issue. Um, So we focused on the direct warning issued by community pharmacies national bodies to the government about the urgent need for investment in the sector. Um, Following on from this and amid the news um, that Lloyd's Pharmacy is set to pull out of all Sainsbury's branches this year, Um, Pharmacy bodies in England, including the MPA, PSNC, CCA and AIMP, have announced last week that they'll be launching a campaign to lobby for fair NHS funding for pharmacy and to mobilise public support through shared resources as the threat of closure increases day by day. Um, 
The key message of the campaign, according to MPA Chief Executive Mark Lionette, is that pharmacies can help get the NHS back on its feet, but not while the sector itself is on its knees. Um, the campaign will be entitled Save Our Pharmacies and will highlight the pressure pharmacies under as well as the huge untapped potential of the sector. Obviously, this is a really important issue. Um, the bodies have said that regular campaign events are expected from March. So make sure to look out for all of those. Um, they'll be under the hashtag Save Our Pharmacies. Um, so you can use that to find out how you can get involved. Awesome. Save Our Pharmacies. That's certainly a picket sign I can get behind. Um, so you don't just have to listen to our two lovely voices. We have also arranged a couple of interviews based on news stories that are popular at the minute. Up next, I speak to Dr. Ron Daniels. I'd like to welcome Dr. Ron Daniels, BEM founder and joint CEO of the UK Sepsis Trust. Hi, Ron. How are you doing today? Hi there, Monica. I'm well, thank you. Brilliant. And could you tell us a little bit about you and the work that you do? So my background, I'm an intensive care consultant in Birmingham in the West Midlands. And through that, now getting on for 20 years ago, I noticed that a large part of our workload in intensive care is around sepsis. And it were people who were coming into hospital often too late Often junior health professionals didn't really know how to identify sepsis and what to do about it. So we set out on a journey to improve that. We established the charity in 2010. And really the three functions of what we do are raising public awareness around sepsis so that people know when to access healthcare services at the right time. Educating health professionals about sepsis, giving them the tools with which to act. So giving them very operational, helpful resources to allow them to identify sepsis quickly and to act and deliver the right treatments. And then the third thing we do is support people affected by sepsis, because once people have been through hospital with an episode of sepsis, around 40% of them have life-changing after effects and they need help. Well, we're absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today. Um, as we're going to be discussing some quite big health news topics at the minute. And one that was certainly hitting the headlines right before Christmas was Strep A. Um, But just before we jump into the current situation, would you be able to tell us what Strep A is for our listeners who might not be aware? Of course, there are loads of different types of bacteria, of course, and Streptococci or Streptococci are one of the types of bacteria that can cause infection in humans. And in fact, it's one of the more common causes of infection that we treat in hospital. So group A strep or Streptococcus pyogenes, to give it its, uh, its, its original name, is just one type of Streptococcus. And it can cause infection in humans. It more commonly causes infection in children than in adults, but it can affect anyone. I think it is important to reinforce that a lot of us carry this bacteria around uh, in our bodies when we're well. So it's out there anyway. It's not a new thing. And I think the second important thing to remember is that most infections with strep A are pretty minor. And at the moment, most of them will be treated with antibiotics, but not always. But we don't necessarily need antibiotics to treat these infections when they're mild. 
That's great. That's very reassuring for sure. And um, how come it's hitting the headlines then recently? Well, I mean, even before it hit the headlines, I was starting to see these signals in my clinical practice. And as you said, just before Christmas and into the period between Christmas and New Year, we were seeing rather a lot of cases of group A strep. And it often coexisted with influenza in patients. So people described that they'd been unwell for a week or so, they'd had flu-like symptoms, and then they got very much worse. And it was that sort of patient that we were seeing. And some of them, of course, by no means all of them, and by no means a majority, were becoming sick enough to require urgent assessment in hospital. And then this was brought out in data from the UK Health Security Agency, the former Public Health England, who identified that we were seeing rather more cases of Group A strep than we would expect to see in a given winter. For our pharmacy staff who are on the front line, um, a lot of them have been getting quite a lot of questions um, obviously about this, especially um, a lot of the cases had been, you know, with children and such. Um, and they're getting asked all the time, like, what should I look out for? Um, do you have any tips of the red flags that m- may indicate um, a more serious infection? Yeah, of course. And I think it might be helpful just to describe some of the more minor infections that strep A can cause, just so that your pharmacy staff are aware of the sort of people in whom they do need to worry significantly and the sort of people in whom they don't. So strep A can cause a general flu-like illness, um, which doesn't always need treating. It can cause strep throat, might be tonsillitis, it might be a very severe sore throat. It can cause scarlet fever, which is where children will have a characteristic sort of rough reddish rash on the skin. It can cause scabs and sores around the mouth and so forth and impetigo. It can cause cellulitis and so forth. Now, some of those conditions will need antibiotics. Some of them don't necessarily need antibiotics. And I think it's important that pharmacy staff consider the current recommendations from the Health Security Agency as to when to treat with antibiotics. But what your staff, of course, are going to want to look out for um, are signs that they might need to offer more specific advice to parents. So... We would advise that parents either make an appointment to go see the GP or get help from 111, but increasingly the pharmacy staff might be able to offer a lot of this advice themselves if a child is very unwell and getting worse. If they're feeding or they're eating, has reduced significantly. If they're eating a lot less than normal or feeding with their milk a lot less than normal. If they're a baby, if they're having fewer wet nappies than usual, if they're an older child, if they're going to the loo less often than normal, um, if they've got a very high temperature or if the child's tired or irritable. That's the sort of child in whom we need to seek advice. That advice might be offered by pharmacy staff, of course, but parents can also be signposted to NHS 111 or to their own GP. Now, there's a separate set of symptoms in children that should warrant urgent attention. And if a member of pharmacy staff sees any of these symptoms in a child in the context of infection, they should really send them straight to A&E. So if a child's breathing very fast or having pauses in their breathing, if they have a fit or a convulsion, if their skin looks very pale or mottled or bluish in colour, if they have that rash that all parents fear that doesn't fade when you've pressed it, If the child's very lethargic or difficult to wake up, they simply won't show interest in anything or if they feel abnormally cold to the touch and that has to be taken in 
the context of very cold temperatures in the winter. But any one of those symptoms, then they're all available on our website, then that child needs to go straight to A&E. Now, a member of pharmacy staff might choose to call 999, but we have to remember at the time of recording in winter 2023, ambulance wait times can be very long. And if a parent can safely get the child to hospital more quickly under their own steam, then that might be a better way of getting them there. Brilliant. And why is it vital to make these sorts of interventions? So if a group A strep infection becomes invasive and causes serious illness, there are a few sort of ways in which that might affect the individual. It might cause a deep-seated abscess, which can cause a very swinging fever, and that will need um, certainly antibiotics, but also drainage of the abscess, which might require surgery. More commonly, though, the most common way in which people become seriously unwell with invasive group A strep is sepsis. Sepsis is the way the body responds to an infection. It's the immune system going into overdrive and overreacting to the infection, and it starts to cause organ damage. That is a medical emergency. And for every hour we wait in people with sepsis, the chance of surviving diminishes by one or two percent. So it really is critical that if we suspect sepsis, if we suspect invasive group A strep in anyone coming, whether they're a child or an adult, we understand that this is a life-threatening condition that requires urgent attention. The one bit of good news is that kids, particularly younger kids, are far more likely to survive that illness than an older adult. So it remains time critical. We still need to get them to hospital, but if they're treated quickly, the outcomes can be very good. Again, that's really reassuring. So thank you, Ron. And um, earlier you briefly mentioned about your website. I wondered if you'd be able um, to share those resources with us. We'll, of course, include them in our show notes. But where can pharmacies teams signpost people to for further support with this? Of course. So there's really two options in, in terms of support. There is, of course, the NHS website, NHS England and Improvement, where there is specific advice around Group A strep. But I would suggest that really what we're looking for is a child or an adult who needs to get themselves to hospital quickly. We're worried here about sepsis. Now, if it turns out to be an abscess and not sepsis, it doesn't matter. They still need to get to hospital urgently. And therefore, I would propose that going to our website at sepsistrust.org, looking at the resources that are about sepsis, you can download their symptoms cards, you can order physical symptoms cards, and it will give you specific advice as to what to do with those patients. There are broadly two resources that pharmacy health can look to for advice. If they're specifically interested in group A strep, then there's some good information on the NHS website if you just search NHS strep A. But what we're really concerned about, because often pharmacists won't have access to the test, they won't know whether it's strep A or another bug. What we're really worried about is which of our patients coming in and accessing pharmacy services we need to encourage to go to hospital immediately. There, it doesn't really matter whether someone's got a deep-seated abscess or whether they've got sepsis, which is the more common response to group A strep. We need symptoms which clearly signpost us to go to hospital. And those are available on the Sepsis Trust website. Sepsistrust.org, you click the link on about, and it will tell you the symptoms of sepsis in adults and the symptoms in children. You can download symptoms cards, you can order physical symptoms cards if you wish. The important thing to know about all of these symptoms 
is they were agreed in extensive consultation with the Royal Colleges and the then Public Health England back in 2017. So these are official symptoms lists that should signpost you to send your patients to hospital if you're extremely concerned. Thank you so much, Ron. More than welcome, Monica. Very happy to help and always happy to raise awareness and to help fellow health professionals understand which patients they need to act quickly. A big thank you again to Ron. Millie, what have you got for us next? This one I am excited about. I was really encouraged to read that the Welsh Government has announced that it will be investing £7 million in a digital system for countrywide maternity services with the aim of improving the care that women and their babies receive. Um, So at present, the Welsh health boards use different systems, some digital and some still paper-based, which seemed mad to me. Um, But the new system will mean that important information about the health of pregnant women and their unborn babies will be easily shared with all those involved in their care. Um, Women will also be able to gain their own access um, to their records if, if they need. So the system is set to become available across the country over the next two to three years. Um, Once it's rolled out, it will allow pregnant patients digital access to their maternity notes via the NHS Wales app, which is currently still in development, um, obviously after the success of the NHS England app. The Health Minister, Alinaid Morgan, who announced the programme, um, said that the new system will give women much more control over their maternity records and allow them to feed back to midwives and doctors much faster via an app that will have records of all their discussions with health professionals. Um, so that's great. It's really encouraging. And I'm hopeful that there'll be something like this in England soon as well. Um, so recently, thank God, there seems to be a common theme in making women's health care more accessible across the board, which I, for one, am thrilled about. Um, so, for example, in September 2021, the NHS also launched the Community Pharmacy Contraception Service Pilot, with the aim of creating more capacity in primary care and sexual health clinics by allowing oral contraception access to be available through a community pharmacy. Um, The pilot split into two tiers with focus on firstly providing more access to oral contraception and then for tier two going one step further in initiating access to contraception. Um, So tier two began in October 2022 and it's set to finish in September this year. Um, I spoke to Ben Morris to hear more about it from an expert. He's a pharmacist at Mere Hay Pharmacy in Staffordshire, and he told me about his how his pharmacy are taking part in the pilot scheme. Today I'm talking to Ben Morris, who's the pharmacist at Mere Hay Pharmacy in Staffordshire. Hi Ben, how are you? Hi, yes, I'm good, thanks. Millie, how are you? Um, so just to kick things off, could you just run through um, a bit about like what the pilot scheme is about and what its aims are? Yeah, so um, the aim of the scheme was to have pharmacies um, managing the ongoing supply of oral contraceptives. Um, so tier one of the scheme, which is the scheme we've been involved in the piloting for just over 12 months, um, is essentially when a patient presents for a repeat request of a um, of medication that they've been on for oral contraception instead of having to have the pill check at the gp surgery and issue a prescription um, we can do the pill check within the pharmacy setting and offer them the uh, tablets via a pgd rather than having to have a physical prescription that's great it's just so much more convenient um and when when did the pharmacy first get involved or like how did you hear about the scheme 
Um, so it was through our local NHS England team. Um, they wanted to use a PCN locally in Stoke-on-Trent um, to provide the service as part of the pilot. Um, so in the MIA PCN, which is obviously the PCN we are involved with, there's about five or six GP practices who were being briefed on it. Um, and they wanted, obviously, some pharmacies from within the PCN to get on board as well. So we did the training for that around 12 months ago. Um, and we went live with it in January 2022. And obviously the service sort of built up pace from there. And what's the, the response been like? Have you ever been popular in the community? Yeah, I mean, it's been positive all around to be honest so obviously everyone I speak to or do a consultation for just speaks about how how much more convenient it is from a patient perspective um, than having to sort of sit on the phone and wait for a GP appointment um, and I think it gives pharmacists that more clinical look as well in the community so obviously you have a lot of pharmacists going to work in sort of GP practices and clinical roles these days but obviously we can provide these clinical services from in a community pharmacy setting as well. Yeah, that's great. It's good to like, get the message out there. Um, do, would the patients hear about it from the GP or do you advertise it in the store? How does that work? So initially, uh, we hadn't done any advertising. How we did things from the start was sort of target patients who were having repeat prescriptions for contraceptives. So we briefed all the staff initially. In any contraceptive pill we were giving out on a prescription, we were making the patient aware that next time they are due for a supply, they don't need to go through the GP, they can come in for an appointment with ourselves. Um, so that's how we did things initially for the first couple of months. And obviously we weren't getting massively busy from that point because obviously patients were having six or 12 months worth of the pill on a prescription at the time. Um, and then we started sort of briefing the local GPs on the service as well. So we've got a surgery we work quite closely with um, so I briefed the practice manager of the service and from sort of August time onwards, their stance now is that anyone who, who rings up for a pill check, they just automatically refer them straight to us now. So that's when it's really started to gather pace. That's perfect. And is that something that's happening across the area of GPs and some community pharmacies working together? Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, when you've got good working relationships with the, um, the local GPs in the area, the sort of more than happy to get on board with any services that you can provide, especially with services that are obviously taking pressure off the GPs ultimately. Yeah, of course. And with, with the contraception service, is it for certain types of pill or is it all? Um, so the, the tier one service is for both the combined oral contraceptive and the progesterone owned contraceptive. It is only for the tablets uh, currently. Um, but then there's more tiers of the service coming through over the next sort of couple of years in development where there'll be more sort of options available to patients going forward. And is your pharmacy entering, entering tier two of the scheme? Yes. So we signed up to tier two a couple of months ago, um, which essentially allows us to sort of administer contraceptives for the first time. Um, so I've only done sort of a handful of consultations at tier two at the moment. Um primarily just changes in formulation so patients who've wanted to change between the patch and the tablet or between a combined and a progesterone only pill um i suppose it's much more difficult with the tier two service to get traction for new patients because there's no one coming in on a repeat cycle it's more of obviously getting the word out there i suppose that this is a service community pharmacy office as well as the sexual health clinics these days yeah, of course, and I guess if you build up, they keep coming in the tier one, you can then, if they have any queries about their pills. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, a lot of the time now, if anyone, <laughs> if ever, anyone was having particular issues with the pill, um, 
at tier one, we'd have to refer them back to the prescriber. But when we're part of tier two, we can actually offer them a different pill to see how they go trialing a different pill from there. Okay, and what about um, your own opinion on the scheme? Is there anything that you would like to see happen or anything you'd like to, yes. um, I guess, change? Um, I think going forward, I mean, the ultimate aim with pharmacists coming out of um, undergraduate schools with the ability to prescribe going forward from, I think, 2026, I think the ultimate aim of the service would be to move away from PGDs and do it as an independent prescribing service for pharmacists who are independent prescribers. How do they go about doing that? Um, I think from 2026, so all, all newly qualified pharmacists will be independent prescribers from the go it's just obviously getting all the setup in the background from nhs england's point of view to allow pay, allow pharmacists to sort of prescribe within community pharmacy which there is a lot of um, schemes coming over the next sort of couple of years pilot schemes with independent prescribers um, but that's ultimately the way i could see it going in the future thanks millie and ben um, finally, as it's cervical screening week this week, I would just like to say a quick shout out to cervical screening and to please, please, please try where you can to book. Unfortunately, I did see on the BBC today that there was a report of a woman actually put off, who was put off booking her test because wait times were too long. But please don't let that be a deterrent. I know people are worried for such a wide range of, of reasons about going to get their smear tests from being scared or hurt to having an experienced trauma. Um, I'd ask for you, pharmacy teams, and if you need these resources yourself, to signpost people to Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust at Joe's Trust. It's J-O-S and then trust.org.uk for support and to find out more. It really is so important to get checked. Um, the BBC story report um, reported that the NHS records show 4.6 million women, I'll repeat that, 4.6 million women, or 30% of those eligible, have never been screened for cervical cancer or are not up to date with their tests. So we hope you too can advocate for it, not just this week, but hopefully every week. Thank you. Uh, anything more from you, Millie? No, just thank you so much for listening and a special thanks again to Ben. It was great to hear about what a difference pharmacy can make when given more responsibility and, importantly, resources. Absolutely. Thank you to Millie. Thank you, Ben. And, of course, Ron. Um, thank you, listeners. That's it for our January podcast. We hope we've eased you into the year and unwrapped a couple of health news items you to think about we'll be back to conditions next month and if there's one you desperately want us to cover that you feel like we haven't managed to yet please get in touch send us an email at tm at 1530.com or message us on instagram we're at tm magazine uk that's it for now so all that's left to say is thank you once again for listening i'm monica west and this is category insight mm-hmm.